This morning, we continue our sermon series, Encountering Jesus. This is part three of a series where we are looking at significant encounters that Jesus has with ordinary people like you and me. And it's in these encounters, whether it's the Pharisee named Nicodemus or the woman standing at the well, that I want you to see each week that each encounter leads to radical transformation. It changes everything. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Appropriately, it's the encounter that Jesus has with a mother, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. And it's in this encounter that we discover greatness and what greatness is all about, but not greatness as it's defined by the world, not greatness as it's defined by the kingdom of this world, but greatness as it's defined by the kingdom of God. So let's look at this encounter between Jesus and the mother of the sons of Zebedee together, beginning in verse 17 of Matthew 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him, and asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say, that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Gotta appreciate the ambition. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those to whom it's been prepared by my father. And then the 10 heard it and they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but know not the word of our Lord. It stands forever. Amen. Who here wants to be great? I mean, does anybody wake up and say, I've made a decision to be mediocre? I want to be average at best, a mediocre at my job. I want to be a mediocre student, a mediocre athlete. I, I want my marriage to be just average. Nobody, no one. Inside of every one of us is a longing and a desire for greatness, to be great. And the problem is, in our culture, we are told that in order to achieve greatness, you need to find fame and fortune 
You drive around any big city and you see arenas and theaters and stadiums and libraries and government buildings named after men and women who did great things in life. The problem is Jesus says, in order to be great, you need to die. In order to go up, you need to go down. In order to find greatness, you must lose yourself here on earth. In fact, Jesus says, if any man comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. The world says, you need to be served. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, you're here to serve. And so what does it mean to be great? Not according to the wisdom of the world, but what does it mean to be great in the economy of God and his kingdom The first thing I want you to see in this passage is the definition of kingdom greatness. Jesus, in the context of this passage, delivers a paradigm-altering definition of greatness. This definition of greatness has changed the world over the past 2,000 years. So I pray that if you're new to Christianity and new to the Bible, that you would heed the warnings that are made available to us in this passage. You would heed the definition of kingdom greatness because it has changed the world, it has turned the world upside down, and it has the power to change you this morning. So what is this definition of kingdom greatness? Well, we need to understand the context. We read beginning in verse 17 that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is not the first time he's going to Jerusalem, but it will be the last. He won't make it out of Jerusalem alive. And he pulls the 12 aside, the 12 apostles, and he says to them, when I go to Jerusalem, it's not gonna end well. I'm gonna be arrested. There's gonna be a sham trial. I'm going to be beaten, stricken, and nailed to a cross. This is my future in Jerusalem. And it's in the context of Jesus sharing the sobering news to his followers that the mother, the sons of Zebedee, kneels before him. I mean, talk about being tone deaf. I mean, emotional IQ of zero. Jesus is pouring his heart out. This is what's going to happen to me. And the mother kneels before him and says, oh, by the way, when you get to the kingdom, will my sons have a spot? I mean, Jesus, you're a rising star. I I want my son to be on the right and my other son to be on the left. But this only reveals the deep, deep depravity of humanity, doesn't it? That in the end, we are always concerned with who? First and foremost, We're consumed with us. The mother's request here to Jesus is revealing of how self-centered and self-absorbed we are. In the moment of Jesus' distress, the mother has one concern for her and her boys. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus says to the woman, you clearly do not understand the kingdom. Now we have to give the mother and the sons credit. It's easy to miss that the mother and the sons at the very least acknowledged that Jesus has come to be the king and that even in his lowly estate that he was establishing his kingdom. What they missed completely was the nature and the ethic and the values of the kingdom because Jesus is revealing 
that this kingdom, the kingdom of God that I have come to inaugurate, that one cannot seek greatness in and of themselves. That's not possible in the kingdom. This idea of sitting at the right and the left was synonymous with a position of power. They recognized that Jesus was the ruler and to be on the right or the left of the king or the right or the left of the ruler was a position of authority. But Jesus says this in verse 25. This is what the Gentiles do. What's Jesus saying there? By using the phrase Gentiles, he's describing the the entire known world at the time, the the non-believing, non-Jewish world. And what Jesus is saying is profound. This is how unbelievers act. And it's unbecoming of you as a follower of the king. This is how non-believers function. They function out in the world as if humility is a handicap and not a virtue. And it was Jesus who came and he said, this is how my kingdom will function. In order to go up, you must go down. In order to be exalted in this kingdom that I've come to establish, you must humble yourself. And in the context of Jesus's entire teaching, he gives this very dire and sobering warning. If you do seek to exalt yourself, on this side of heaven, you surely will be humbled. But in verse 26 and 27, you're not like the Gentiles. He says, you're not like the unbelievers. He says, this is how you act. In verse 26 and 27, may it not be so among you, but for whoever seeks to be great, you must be a servant. And whoever must be first must be a slave. To use this language of servant and slave, especially in the ancient world, was to communicate that you must decrease completely, that you must empty yourself of pride and glory, that you must become the low man on the totem pole, that you must understand what it means in the economy of God and his kingdom to be part of what the Bible calls the least of these. And if you don't understand of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, you'll never understand what it means to follow me. What Jesus is ultimately saying here in Matthew chapter 20 is that greatness in the kingdom of God cannot come about without suffering and service. That unless you are willing to die, you cannot truly live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Greatness in God's economy involves suffering. And Jesus even says, you have no idea what you're asking. He earlier says in verses 22 and 23, he talks about this cup and he says, you're not able to drink the cup. What's the cup? All throughout the Old Testament, the cup was full and symbolic of the wrath of God. God promised that one day, all of the evil and all of the injustice and all of the sin of the world, that the wrath of God in light of the evil and injustice of the world, all of his wrath would be squeezed into this cup and that his wrath would be poured out. And Jesus is saying, this is what I've been called to do, to take on the wrath of God. I have come not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. I have 
call, been called to come into this world as the son of God to suffer and die. And that is your calling as well. You want to join me? Are you willing to die for me? You want to be great? You must suffer and serve. You can understand how unpopular this message is in the North American church. A couple of years ago when I was preaching on a similar topic from Philippians where Paul makes the audacious statement that I consider all of the accolades of the world rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. I had a very well-to-do couple come up to me afterwards and they say, we've achieved greatness in this life, pastor, and we've earned it and we deserve it. Needless to say, they didn't come back the next week. Incredibly unpopular message. The call to suffer and to die. If you are a parent or a grandparent, do not rob your children or your grandchildren from the joy of suffering for the kingdom. Do not rob this next generation, a generation which is consumed with themselves. Do not rob them of the joy and the pleasure of serving and suffering for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I remember talking to a husband. I was on a speaking engagement in Jacksonville and in between the sessions, the, the husband looked rather downcast and I said, what, what was happening And he said, after 20 years, I'm leaving my wife. And I said, what's happening? He said, well, after 20 years, uh, she just doesn't do it for me anymore. Doesn't make me happy. And I looked at him and I said, where did you get off thinking this was all about you? Listen to me. If you're married and you think it's all about you, You are robbing your marriage of joy and intimacy if you think that all of this is all about you. It is a call, the kingdom of God, to deny yourself and to take up your cross. That means all of us, if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, it means we wake up every day and we say, I die to my needs, I die to my preferences, I die to my convenience, and I die to my comforts. The message of the kingdom of God is very clear. If you want to be a somebody, you got to be first willing to be a nobody. And the message of the gospel is clearer that a somebody, Jesus Christ, came down and became a nobody so that you and I could be somebodies in the economy of God. It is a great act of counter-cultural engagement to wake up every day and make the declaration that my life is not for me. That the first question you ask when you wake up is not what is best for me, but what is best for the kingdom. And let's train and raise up a generation that doesn't first and foremost think what is best for them, but may they be raised in this church and in our home saying what is best for the kingdom of God. So how does this happen? If this is the definition of kingdom greatness, how in the world would self-absorbed, self-centered people like you and me ever live like this? Well, second and lastly, where do we find the power for kingdom greatness? Some might offer that it was in Jesus's example. I'd like to offer you another option. 
You see, if it was Jesus' example, he did a terrible job. I mean, Jesus, for three years, healed the sick, he raised people from the dead. And these disciples, even after example after example, still didn't get what it meant to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Let me offer you that it was far more than just Jesus' example, but a substitutionary atonement. In verse 28, we see the power for what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. In verse 28, we read, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give, to give his life as a ransom, a ransom meant, it was ancient terminology that was used to describe the price that was paid to take a prisoner out of captivity and bring him into freedom. And that is precisely what Christ has done for us. Christ has come not merely to be a great example, but to be our substitute, to rescue you and me from the enslavement of thinking that life is all about us. What a terrible way to live. What a sad way to live, to wake up every day thinking life is about us. And he comes as a ransom to rescue us. How? By taking that cup, taking that cup of wrath, on the cross, and it was the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross in place of his disciples. And it's the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross in our place that alone will give you and me the power to renounce ourselves, to deny ourselves, and to take up the cross and follow him. No, it wasn't merely his example, but his substitution that alone gives us the power to take self-absorbed, self-centered people like you and me and transform them into selfless, sacrificial servants of the kingdom of God. Oh, it is one thing to die for your friends, but as Paul says, it's another thing to die for your enemies. Every world religion without exception says, you need to be reconciled to God, but you have to pay the price. You have to pay the ransom. You have to do your part. Christianity alone says you can't. But let me introduce you to the one who can. Let me introduce you to the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the good news for you and me this morning is that Jesus offers himself freely as the one who drank the cup and took your place and alone is the one that frees us from the existence of thinking that life is all about us and frees us and gives us the power to know that life is ultimately about the kingdom of God alone. There are a lot of books and TV preachers, listen to me, that are convincing North Americans that if they have God, they will have wealth and health and prosperity. And if you have bought into that, run, run for your lives because they are leading you down the broad road of destruction. That message will destroy you and it'll destroy our children. Jesus does not offer the broad road. He offers the narrow road, but it's the narrow road that leads to life. It is the narrow road of the kingdom of God that calls us to die so that we could live.
came to serve. It changed the world 2,000 years ago, and it can change you this morning. At the end of the 19th century, there was two men that were shaping culture in particular, Robert Ingersoll and D.L. Moody. Robert Ingersoll was an attorney and he was an atheist and he proudly visited campuses all across North America attempting to disprove the existence of God. He would openly mock Christians in the audience. He would say things like this, if there is a God, pronounce a curse upon me. And if there is a God, he'll surely strike me dead. He would look at his watch and he would give it about two minutes and he said, I guess there is no God. D.L. Moody, on the other hand, traveled the country boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Souls were being saved. And at the end of both of their lives, they died about six months apart in 1899. Robert Ingersoll, with no hope and no hope of glory and no hope for a future, dies with family surrounding him And they were so distressed because of their lack of hope that they did not want to depart from the body. They literally had to have people called in to remove the body after days of it just sitting there. After all, if there is no God, there is no hope. If there is no hope and no glorious future, all you have is a dead corpse. On the other hand, D.L. Moody surrounded by family. And before he took his last breath, he opened his eyes for the last time and he turned to his daughter and he said these words, quote, you will soon read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield, Illinois is dead. But don't you believe a word of it. For at that moment, I shall be more alive than ever before. For me to live is Christ but to die is gain. Do you know how dangerous we would be if we actually believe that to be true? Some of you here this morning have made a very dangerous wager. You have waged your entire life on the reality that God does not exist. You have waged your entire existence on life being all about you. And I am here this morning to plead with you to tell you that it is not too late, that I want you to go all in this morning. I want you to go all in with your life and all in with your marriage and all in with your family and all in with your career and say today marks the day where life is no longer about me. Oh, how tragic that life is. That's a sad life. But life is all about the kingdom of God. I wanna go all in through the power of the gospel according to the message of the kingdom of God and let's together experience true greatness greatness in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, you came into this world and you turned it upside down. And you said that greatness is not found in fame and fortune. Greatness is not found in the virtues of this world. Greatness is found in losing ourselves in order to find it. Greatness is found for those that humble themselves in this life 
in order to be exalted in the life that lasts forever. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room and watching at home that have lived their entire life thinking that this life revolves around them. What a sorry, sad existence. Empty. Lord, I pray that they would recognize for the first time this morning that life, life as it was meant to be lived, life abundantly is found only for those that die to themselves and take up the cross and follow after Jesus. It's for those that lose themselves only in order to find it. And I pray that there would be many here today and watching at home that would find life life as it was meant to be lived, and that through Jesus Christ, they would realize that only he offers complete forgiveness and complete forgiveness. So may many confess you as Lord and a Savior. May orphans be transformed into sons and daughters, and may people be freed from the burden of thinking that life is all about them. That greatness is found here in the economies of this world and understand that true freedom and true greatness is found only in the kingdom of God. May people surrender this day and take up their cross and follow after you. And may we be a church empowered by the ransoming power of Jesus Christ, Jesus in our place, that we would go out as salt and as light into a lost and broken and dying world and point people to the true king who is on his throne, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And it's in Jesus' name I pray this prayer. Amen and amen.